Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Well, uh, just in case you believed what the left was saying, that there's nothing you can do to get suspended from Twitter these days under the new ownership of Elon Musk. What happened? Kanye West proved that's not true. (laughs) I I mean, he, you know, the Kanye West story, it's sad and it's, I think it's going to get more sad before too long. And I'm not just talking about because he's been suspended from Twitter for uh, more anti-Semitic commentary uh, and also commentary on Alex Jones's show yeah, and Nick Fuentes was there. I, I watched the whole thing. I couldn't. Why? Why was he wearing a black cat suit? Um, face? I'm sure everyone has seen it, but I. It was, I'm not exactly sure. I said it's some sort of um, protestation against his perceived persecution. I, I, I don't know. You know, we, we have to remember. I suppose, or at least factor into the conversation, yeah, that he has by has bipolar disorder. Right. He's he's been diagnosed as bipolar, right? And so, by and he needs to be on certain meds, and if he's off his meds, he does bizarre things. Well, bipolarity is characterized by dramatic shifts in mood and ability to think clearly, um, and um, those seem to be attendant to Kanye West's behavior as of late on on Alex Jones's show and this is about the only time we'd ever play a clip from Alex Jones's show I think my my view on Alex Jones is well known um so is and, mine. and Nick Fuentes like for that matter um uh Kanye Kanye has been a bit more complicated over the years but he's making himself less and less complicated Two clips from his performance on Alex Jones's show. Listen to listen to this. I was tired of picking up the Yahoo and the netting, so for now he's just netting. I know some people call him BB. No, some you call him Yahoo, but we're gonna call him netting. What you want, netting? Hey, yay, right after this, I'm going to say you're crazy. I'm going to take your, your family away from you. We're not done with you yet. You cannot cause free thought. We have to control the history books. We have to control the banks. And we have to go and kill people. Also, we're in the pedophilia. Ha, ha, So, and in a little while, hopefully you're going to take the mask off. Because this, is this actually yay here? <laughs> he had a uh, fishnet out and a bottle of Snapple and going, baby, baby, baby. Was it a snapper or was it it was a was Yoohoo? It, or was it a I can I think it was Netin 
Yuhu, like Netanyahu, he was having fun with the name, and so then he was talking to the Netan. We're oh, going to call him net. Netan, as mm-hmm. and then and then using that voice to characterize how Bibi Netanyahu allegedly speaks. Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey dot pro answer line. You could also reach us on our text message at six four six three six. Type in DA, then a quick comment. I, I mean, that, that's. It persisted. I know. For the ADL. They are going to have to listen up. What we did is we brought Netanyahu with us. Ah. (laughs) I'm in the twilight zone right now. Netanyahu, what do you have to say? What do you have to say to Alex Jones right now, Nick Fuentes and Ye? It was bad. It was bad for Trump to meet with... (laughs) Okay. I had no idea your voice is going to sound like that, Netanyahu. So you don't like Benjamin Netanyahu? <laughs> I just, I, I just heard about this guy two weeks ago since so like the tweet, and I thought he had a funny name. I heard he's like really into like he's like a super killer. And I could die for saying this. So in case this is the last time you ever hear from me. <laughs> well, look, 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 look. look. Oh, it sounds like Daniel Tiger from uh, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, that impression, that high voice he's using. Yeah. But that's uh, not what the issue is. Okay, okay. right. It's going a little King Friday on us. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. He's also said, also said uh, yesterday, apparently, that um, the IRS is uh, involved with his finances and he owes something like $50 million to the IRS. And so he's getting a crash course in learning how to count. This is his characterization and how to manage his finances. And he also just was, you know, they finalized their divorce and he has to pay $200,000 a month in child support to Kim Kardashian. Yeah, she better get what she can get while she can. (laughs) Exactly. I think that number is coming down before too long. Oh, boy. So I, I, I honestly don't even know what to do with that, uh, except feel, uh, I, I don't know, I guess sad for Kanye West's uh, self-immolation and, I, I guess, lack of anyone around him to protect him. Or, to, or, or maybe there's nobody around him, even if they want to, that has the ability to help him restrain himself from the self-immolation. I mean, he also spent time... Praising Hitler. Oh, so bad. Um, I, the Jewish media has made us feel like the Nazis and Hitler have never offered anything of value to the world. I see good things about Hitler also. Mm. Yeah, and this whole the Jewish media and you heard the other tropes, the anti-Semitic tropes, the banks and Hollywood and so on and so forth. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and now the whole now Twitter is just reacting people whose loved ones fought. You know, in World War Two, Michael Johns, he said, this is my paternal grandfather. He put his life on the line to stop Hitler's advances and was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross for Extraordinary Heroism at the Battle of. I can't read that. I'm sorry. He's he'd have a few words for Kanye West this morning. Well, I mean, it's just. It's, it's, what, 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 what do you do with that? Except say these are just ignorant ravings of somebody who's been diagnosed with bipolarity and apparently needs some 
medical treatment and should probably stay away from microphones for a while and should stop hanging out with goofballs like Alex Jones and Nick Fuentes and uh, just take a rest somewhere, disappear from the public eye for a while and see if you can reset yourself and come back and behave like a, uh, a, a, a cogent thinking adult. Uh, I, you know, and it's. Well, do you I mean, think I th- he should have been taken off Twitter. Well, yeah. I mean, I yeah. Do. I think. I, I, yeah, of course. I mean, I, I like uh, that. There's no sort of right to be on Twitter. Number one and number two. Yeah, if you're going to post uh, uh, racist or anti-Semitic, clearly racist and anti-Semitic uh, images or diatribes, well, sure, you're allowed to have sort of community standards consistent with uh, our, uh, you know, our view of social mores that inform content moderation. I mean, that's the whole thing. Nobody's ever said that you um, can't make these editorial decisions. It is a private platform, you know, privately held platform. And so, right. The question is not uh, curbing virulent speech even though it's first amendment protected it's you know are you facilitating a public square where substantive discussion including disagreement including sometimes you juvenile name calling including parody and satire you know something can as i said a, a public domain consistent with community standards and social mores not that you have no ability or should have no ability to censor anyone and, and 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 anything that someone says, no, of course not. Who's ever said that? No one. But the the left takes that position and uses it to declare everything that runs counter to their worldview as hate speech and censor on that basis, and that's what's problematic. And so it's and it's never been about really legal or illegal, although I guess to some extent. If when you're talking about congressional action, you get into that realm. But I mean, the 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 disagreement has always been sort of uh, one of fundamental fairness. Are you living up to who you say you are and what you say this platform is about? And is this a force for intelligence discussion and information sharing or is that just a facade? I mean, sort of like the same questions we're asking about things like. You know, government school systems and colleges and universities these days. Are you who you say you are? These values you say you hold, do we see them exhibited? And if not, then it should be identified as that that is not occurring, and uh, people can make up their own minds at that point. Yeah, the, you, one of the last things you call out fraud. Yeah, one of the last things he said uh, or posted was an image of a swastika combined with the Star of David. Right. After he says he loves Nazis and Jews. Is, right. He's, this is mental illness, folks. Now, the the flip side of be allowed. somebody's got to be his gatekeeper. So, so that you know, so there's the issue of Kanye, and then there's the larger issue which we're starting to talk about. Now, the flip side of this is a, a good piece by uh, Eugene Volokh, law professor in the Wall Street Journal. New York State wants to conscript me to violate the Constitution. A law going into effect on Saturday requires social media networks, including any site that allows comments, to publish a plan for responding to alleged hate speech by users. 
he runs this um, a vlog, a blog called the Volok Conspiracy. The law, the law blog I run fits the bill, so the law will mandate that I post publicly my policy responding to comments that, quote, vilify, humiliate, or incite violence against a group based on race, color, religion, ethnicity, national origin, disability, blah, blah, blah. It also requires that I give readers a way to complain about my blog's content and obligates me to respond directly. And he says, I don't want to moderate such content, and I don't endorse the state's definition of hate speech. I do sometimes delete comments, but I do it based on my own editorial judgment, not state command. Still, I'm being conscripted. By obligating me to do this state's bidding with regard to viewpoints that New York condemns, the law violates the First Amendment. And so, again, um, noxious speech is not necessarily illegal speech. And uh, this is, uh, in, you know, this is why the Kanye West thing is an interesting discussion point about uh, not just where you draw the line, but who draws the line. So think about the case of Eugene Volokh and his blog and what the New York is attempting to, as he said, uh, mandate that he do and um, and all the discussions that are going on about Elon Musk's content moderation policies and decisions about who shall and shall not be allowed to post on Twitter at present. The more you listen, the more you listen, the more you'll know. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. We're talking about uh, Kanye West's uh, anti-Semitic tweeting and commenting on Alex Jones's show. His appearance on that show is uh, problematic enough without what he went on to do absurd, bizarre impersonations of B.B. Netanyahu. Um, and he's been pulled off Twitter by Elon Musk. And I think that's a good decision. He, he needs help. Somebody needs to take him aside and just, you know, have a guy's weekend or something or a guy's month or just go into therapy for a month. I mean, a lot has happened to him. I mean, he put it upon himself, but he's lo- he has lost billions of dollars. And nobody's stopping him, and it keeps getting worse and worse. And then he goes on with Alex Jones and Nick Fuentes, who, by the way, I didn't even see talk at all the whole time. He just stood there watching this clown show um, and gets on there with this black mask on and then some headsets. And not even a black mask. It was a, a bodysuit. So at plausible deniability, he could say that, no, that wasn't me. No, I don't I think don't that's think, the yeah. play. Um, Is it a new design or something? 
now, so this is this is interesting in an in an era of uh, uh, outs, you know, where the state, at least that's this is the desire of the left, the state outsourcing restrictions on people's First Amendment rights. And then the flip side of this argument, I'm not saying that Elon Musk doesn't have the power to pull uh, Kanye off Twitter, or that Jack Dorsey didn't have the power to pull Trump off Twitter. They do, legally. And the question is, what kind of standards do we want to hold these platforms to? Do we want to push for these places in terms of market feedback, participation, these places to operate consistent with free speech norms in a free society, free speech norms essentially as laid out by Supreme Court jurisprudence. Now, as Eugene Volokh, the UCLA law professor uh, we were talking about, whose uh, blog is coming under uh, New York state law that he argues, I think, persuasively is unconstitutional, requiring him to police comments on his blog and abide the standard set for moderation by this law that uh, New York State Democrats, socialists, uh, enacted. Uh, He makes the point in his piece in the journal, the Supreme Court has carved out several narrow categories of unprotected speech, but hate speech isn't one of them. And this is the entire impetus of the New York State law, hate speech as, you know, ill-defined. You you can't... the anti sort of anti discrimination as as whoever whatever commissars in New York State decide uh, constitutes hate speech constitutes discriminatory content. Uh, going back to Volokh, speech is protected except in the case of fighting words, truth threats, defamation, or incitement, and these exceptions are applied without regard to whether the speech in question is hateful. The court has wisely recognized that each of us has a different idea of what constitutes good or bad speech, and we can't trust the government to decide which viewpoints are too hateful to merit legal protection. So again, I don't like uh, Kanye's anti-Semitic comments and tweets, and he has been called out for them, as he should be, and now he's been taken off of Twitter, as is you know, within the bounds of the decency standards that a outlet can establish, right? Yeah, and um, Parler also terminated the sale of uh, Parler to Kanye West. They're not going to let him buy it. Well, have, buy that, that deal fell it. apart last month, yeah. Oh. Um, so, yeah, right. I mean, I don't know, you know, whatever wherewithal Kanye has to buy much of anything at this point. He also said that he thinks that he owes the IRS $50 million. Okay. Um but the, so the, 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 but the speech issue, right? So Kanye West's anti-Semitic speech is protected speech, even though you decent people find it objectionable. But that's not the same thing as saying that it must be platformed or you're anti-free speech. There's also just decency standards. We want to have, you know, a conversations that can get juvenile, petty, sophomore, but but, I mean, there's still some guardrails that we want to establish, and that's fine for Twitter, Facebook, uh, any other platform to do. But uh, to force those standards on 
private actors like Eugene Volokh, that's a problem. That's a problem. For example, does speech by Richard Dawkins comparing George W. Bush's faith to that of Osama bin Laden's vilify conservative Christians? Does speech condemning trans athletes who joins women's sports vilify or humiliate based on gender identity? Do harsh criticisms of Israelis or Palestinians vilify those groups? You know, this whole, this sort of um, moving target of vilification and hate that is in the eye and ear of the beholder and is hopelessly intertwined with the politics of status like like the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, who is all politics all the time. So the, these conversations, there was a, a conference recently in which the, speaking of Twitter, the former, and, and let me think of the, these Orwellian titles, the former head of trust and safety at Twitter. <laughs> so if, if, if you have... If Buddy you have, Bench, too? Yeah, I mean, if, if you, that's sort of a tell, right? If you have a position where you have a director of trust and safety and you're a platform, a content platform or, a, you know, outlet, I mean, it just tells you everything about what your attitude towards speech is, which is I want to regulate things that I consider hate and the things I consider hate are just positions with which I disagree which is how Twitter got embroiled in all of these fights and now why so many leftists are leaving Twitter because they actually don't believe in a free marketplace of ideas and they don't want to hear opinions, viewpoints, arguments that are not consistent with their own. Yoel Roth was that former head of trust and safety in Twitter and at this uh, conference for leftist pseudo-intellectuals, he was interviewed by a uh, reporter Kara Swisher about the decision to suppress the Hunter Biden story before the 2020 election and what his actual position was. T- take a listen, because this is you know part of the debate is how we frame, regulate police debate. And beginning in 2017, every platform, Twitter included, started to invest really heavily in building out an election integrity function. This was what I spent my life doing from the middle of 2017 onwards. We were focused on not just U.S. elections, but how do you protect against malign interference in foreign elections? How do you think about different threat actors in this space? And also critically, how do you think about what those threat actors might do? And so as we are threat modeling the 2020 election, it's obvious to think about the most influential thing that impacted the 2016 election, which was the hack and leak campaign organized by the Russian government. And so we would have been stupid not to think about that risk. Right. So what happened there? And so the morning of the Hunter Biden story in the New York Post happens, and it was weird, right? With distance and with with what we know now, we we forget some of the weirdness. But do you remember the, the laptop repair guy? Do you remember the uncertainty of the, of the whole story? We didn't know what to believe. We didn't know what was true. There was, there was smoke. And ultimately for me, uh, it didn't reach a place where I was comfortable removing this content from Twitter. But it set off every single one of my finely tuned APT28 hack and leak campaign alarm right, bells. so it looked possibly probably. 
Everything about it looked you like a hack not, and leak and smelled like a hack and leak. You did not want to do that. Leaked, but it didn't get there for me. Right. And this is, you know, the, the work of content moderation is write a policy, create a system of governance, and then evaluate some new crazy situation why, against those standards. Why the need to do it? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line 64636DA, turnkey.pro. It's actually interesting that he said it didn't get there for him. In other words, he didn't think that the Hunter Biden story should be suppressed. Right. But, you know, the attitude coming into it, first of all, you're starting from a premise that is not beyond reproach. The threat assessment, Russian collusion, based on what, hap- uh, what allegedly happened in 2016. So that's that's the mindset of the leftists at Twitter, formally right. at least, yeah. which is that you know we believe the Russian collusion conspiracy theory even after it's been debunked, and so that's what we're starting from. Twitter's um, responsibility to protect the to protect and keep our election sacrosanct. No, it's not. But when you start to Uh, When you position yourself, as they clearly do, as misinformation hunters, and you're starting from premises that are replete with misinformation, then you are adrift. And this is where Twitter found itself, and still really does, even with Elon Musk at the helm. We'll see how this plays out. It's still too early. Uh, the uh, it didn't get there for me. It didn't. You know, uh, you no one knew what to believe. Excuse me. Excuse me, Mr. Roth. This was reported in the New York Post. Right. This wasn't they like an know. internet rumor. So I, and I mean, the man I, existed. The laptop repair guy existed. But 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 how do you source. think you're in a better position, or any other minder at Twitter is in a better position? than the individuals who chased down the story, reported on the story, provided substantiation for uh, what was claimed in the story. And if you have questions, why don't you why don't you ask the reporter? You don't think they talk to you? I bet they would. They would. Yes. But it's just the idea um, because the New York Post is seen as a center right outlet. That's untrustworthy. Regardless of the uh, substance of the reporting done. And so I have to make my own independent decisions about all of this. Me and my, you know, Twitter minders. That's the attitude of Mr. Roth, Mr. Trusted Safety. Uh, Patricia in St. Charles, you're in Chicago's Morning Answer. Hi, Dan. I caught the interview with Nick on Alex Jones and Yay yesterday. And it was kind of crazy, but I think Nick made an interesting point about Ari Emanuel. I didn't realize he was Tiny Dancer's brother, yes. and their yeah. other brother was the drafter of Obamacare. Right. Yes. Now, is that a conspiracy or anti-Semitic, or is it real? Well, they're actually brothers, and Ari Emanuel is... Um, they help each other out get jobs. Is actually the super agent um, in pamphlet, Hollywood, right? and Zeke Emanuel was one of the drafters of Obamacare. We've talked to him on this show, actually. Um, yeah, so that's okay. no, that's not a conspiracy theory that they're brothers and they have had those jobs. Um, but that also doesn't make Nick Fuentes 
a non-idiot just because he understands that those three are brothers. You know what I mean? Well, what makes Nick an idiot? Uh, because he he's is... He's doing this for show, don't you think? Or do you think he really believes what he's saying? I don't much um, care. I think he, he he's does. He's saying ignorant things. What he's saying. I think he's passionate about his Catholic faith and about I don't our think country. so. I think and he's I very... think he is raising important questions about who does own Hollywood and who does own the banks and who is taking $75 million away from Kanye. What, the IRS? Adidas. Oh. Well, they broke their contract. Him. Ari Emanuel said he wanted to destroy Kanye's career, and this was just after he wore the White Lives Matter shirt. Yeah. Uh, thanks for the call, Patricia. I'm not I mean, aware of the timing on all that. Well, f- well first of all, cared. you know, Kanye, before Kanye got political, um, he was celebrated. Before he... Uh, even and even before he uh, started making anti-Semitic remarks, he was somewhat celebrated. Um, certainly, he was still enjoying the benefits of his celebrity. And then he started so, a church. Remember the church services he would have in certain cities, and people would line up the night before to try and get in. Yeah, he he he. You know, so there's you know, like with everybody, there's good and bad, but. But you have to recognize the bad and what he's been saying in part about Jewish people and that performance on Alex Jones's show is unmitigated bad. I mean, it's just that simple. Nick Fuentes. I mean, I don't follow him or I haven't paid much attention to him. I didn't I even to go know back who and, he was until he had dinner at Trump's house. I, I had to go back and look at some of what he said because of that dinner with Kanye at Mar-a-Lago, and he's just uh, he's just spewing racist nonsense, and to paper over his views with his alleged uh, faith, you know, with his alleged fealty to Catholicism, is an insult to Catholics. There's nothing consistent with the Catholic faith that Nick Fuentes is saying from just a cursory review of some of the things that he has said. It's racist nonsense. It is rank ignorance coming from the mouth and apparently the mind of Nick Fuentes. So, yeah, you got there's some lines that need to be drawn here and some things that need to be called for what they are. I'm not sure if Nick Fuente, I mean, everybody, I guess, is redeemable. We've learned that from uh, our friend, uh, uh, the great uh, uh, the great jazz musician we had on, Alvin Davis, um, who, you know, has converted uh, members of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, so, uh, you know, everybody has the capacity to be redeemed, even Nick Fuentes. I think he's perhaps... Uh, actually farther away from that possibility than Kanye West. I think Kanye West uh, is has a, a mental health issue yeah. in addition to perhaps um, some sort of just loss of sense of self because of, you know, sort of like a fame-addled loss of self or something. I don't know exactly. I'm not trying to do dime store psychoanalysis. Right. He might end up back here in his childhood home. Who knows? 
Well, yeah, he's. I. I think he. I think at some point when Kanye West hopefully gets better, I think he's going to have a lot of regrets about his behavior recently. That would be my guess. Yeah. Uh, Jim and Sheboygan. Yeah. So that Twitter guy talking about Russian hacking and election integrity. 2016, Trump used big tech. I mean, he was great. Right. And the Democrats hated it, and they came hard after big tech after that election and that's why good old zuckerberg gave 400 some million dollars to the democrats in 2020 and they totally the democrats totally turned big tech after the 2016 election because trump used used big tech but he's saying russian hacking that was all julius assange and WikiLeaks. that wasn't russian hacking that that helped um that helped trump in 2016 so his original assumptions all nonsense Right, That's my for, comment. Thanks for the call, Jim. Uh, Dave and Cicero, quickly. Hey, Dave. Yes, uh, good morning. I'm a huge fan of your show, um, and you personally. That said, uh, I would like to. I'm going to challenge you, and um, you might ban me for what I'm about to say. I'm going to ban so, you. Uh, quickly, raised, we only got a few seconds. All right. I, I was raised to be a strong supporter of, of Jews because of. Uh, the Bible that was read to me as a youth, and some of my best friends and people I look up to are Jewish. That said, and here's my challenge to you personally, why, speaking of free speech, why is Kanye not allowed to say what he thinks? The more you listen, the more, you listen, the more you'll know. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Morning Answer on AM560. Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. I love these guys. Not only do they have expansive industry experience, a strong financial track record, but they're also highly capitalized for strategic growth. That's so important. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. They know what it means to grow a business by designing solutions that are right for you and only you. These are real people. They're ready to help. So reach out to my friends at Signature Bank. Make the call today, 773-467-5630, 773-467-5630, or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, SignatureBank.Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender, Signature Bank. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, I wanted to um, turn to legislation that's been introduced in Illinois, even though the veto session is now concluded. Uh, we profiled one piece of legislation earlier this week, the uh, Dan Prop Prevention Act, that's been sponsored by a Morton Grove Democrat socialist hey. to crim- criminalize speech. Oh, sorry for interrupting you, but do you know that she, she lost her primary, her Democratic primary? She's out in January. So this is her swan song on the way out. Well, somebody will have to pick up the ball and run uh, for her, uh, run with that for her. 
I mean, I'm sure they will. And this is why she's doing it. She talked to uh, the Springfield ABC affiliate. All of this disinformation and hateful language uh, no. is really resulting in disgusted and frustrated oh, voters no. that I think we've all seen. Um, and is causing to, the public to become distrustful of government and politics in general. And this is a dangerous thing for our democracy. Of course. Danger, Danger to democracy. That's uh, D-Nice Stone. No, Wang Stonebeck. Yeah, Stonebeck. D-Nice. Yeah. D-Nice, yeah. But um, she's out in January. Yeah, so. Um, Maybe that's why they convinced her to author the legislation. Just saying. Well, again, uh, there's uh, a supermajority of Democrat socialists. Somebody will pick it up and run with it. I sure hope so, if, if it's as dire a situation as D-Nice says it is. Of course, yeah, they're not. Up, they're a bit upset that uh, Jelly Belly got four hundred thousand fewer votes than he got four years ago, and so uh, they blame you. That you know, I I don't know why anybody would be mistrustful of Illinois state government. I don't know, you know, exactly. It must be uh, misinformation. It must be hate speech because why would there be any reason to? Not have faith in Illinois state government and our political ruling class. She makes a great point. Yeah, but wouldn't this pertain to Democrats, too, who lie as well in campaign ads? I mean, no. Pritzker wasn't telling the truth. They don't. They don't lie. Only conservatives lie. Oh, okay. And got they it. only conservatives spread misinformation. Um, they don't. They are the paragons of truth, justice, and the American way. They are the vanguard that protects our democracy for us, even though we don't have a democracy. We have a constitutional republic, but I digress. Yeah. Um, just one thing on the uh, speech. D- Dave and Cicero called at the end of the last hour, and we were talking about Kanye and Twitter and um, this this whole realm of uh, of controversial, if not noxious, speech and how it should be treated. And uh, what Dave was getting to at the end, I just wanted to address it because we ran out of time, is, you know, why can't Kanye – say the things he is say why can't he question uh the control of who's in control of institutions in america he can nobody's saying he can't but the way that he does this by using anti-semitic tropes is not a very persuasive way to do it it's uh because it's inaccurate and um, that's going to draw reaction, and so it has. So nobody's calling for Kanye West to be put in prison because of what he said, because it's protected speech. But he also doesn't have a claim to make that I shall be allowed on Twitter to say the things I'm saying. He doesn't have. He, there's no. There's no entitlement he has to be on Twitter or any other private, privately owned platform, right? But he can. Shouted in the public square if he wants. Well, I have a girlfriend who's, you know, like, who cares about drag queen brunch? Do you want to, you want to send your kid there? That's your business. You govern your own child, <clears throat> which I have a different view on that. But, I, I mean, there's some people out there like, no, why, why can't you be a racist? Who says you can't be a racist? You have free speech. Well, right. A right yes. to free speech. Yes. You have, right. You have, the, you have the right to say ignorant things in a free society. I mean, this is the whole point of freedom of speech, and it was the point that Gene Volokh made in his uh, op-ed in the Wall Street Journal about the arguably unconstitutional law that's been passed by, in New York State. Yeah, the, the whole point of free speech is to protect speech that's unpopular, right. 
because popular speech doesn't need much protection, does it? But when you start to uh, use the power of the state to silence people because of their viewpoints, then you get into this problem we're now in where all I have to do to silence people with whom I disagree is characterize their speech as hateful or a, th- or a, a generic threat to our democracy, and I can shut up political opponents. And then you no longer have a free society. It's not that complicated. It's not that complicated. You just have to have enough adults around that can hear impertinent words without descending into a puddle of tears and calling on the state to intercede. That's all. So it's not about um, Kanye's right to say things. It's the question of the, I don't know, propriety, substance, uh, platform, access. Those are the questions we're discussing. Uh, This other law I wanted to get to, though, in Illinois, sponsored by State Senator Mike Simmons, Democrat Socialist from Chicago, and he's not going anywhere. So he'll be able to carry this legislation um, on himself in the next session next year and our friend LaShawn Ford yeah on the house side uh also supportive of this measure would uh, overturn current Illinois state law and allow uh individuals who are incarcerated serving time in county jails or state or federal prisons would allow them to vote two states allow uh prison inmates to vote at present And I'm not talking about people that have not been convicted of anything and are being held pending trial. I'm talking about and he's talking about people that have been convicted that are serving a sentence in federal or state prison or the county jail. And they should not lose their franchise upon conviction and then have to uh, uh, move to have it reinstated after they've served their time. What do you think about that? It's about... um, I think the number is about 27,000 individuals incarcerated in Illinois that were ineligible to vote this past November 8th, and uh, 55% of them are black. So I guess you would argue that um, not allowing uh, individuals in prison to vote is suppressing the black vote. I'm sure that's what I'm sure that's why Mike Simmons and LaShawn Ford are taking up this measure. What do you think? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636DA, turnkey.pro text line. So this is what they're introducing is they're not convicted felons that they want to vote. They're people awaiting trial. No. They want convicted felons to be able to vote. People people awaiting trial have been convicted of anything, haven't lost their franchise. Okay. People who have been convicted and are serving sentences do in the state of Illinois and 47 other states. And nationwide, 4.6 million Americans are barred from voting due to a felony conviction. This is just for Illinois. Uh, 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. Or so you could text us at 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. I know, I, don't you think that's part of the, the, the plan? The, you know, once you are convicted of a felony, you lose your right to vote. That's part of the punishment. Yeah. It's part of well, the that, prison that, sentence. It's part of, you know, you, you lost this right because you committed this crime and you were found guilty of said crime. Yes, that's the basis of the law right. in Illinois and 47 other states. And now they're saying, well, that should be changed. Maybe they would argue, well, 
your sentence, you know, you're doing, um, I don't know, what's the going rate for murder uh, these days? You're doing uh, five months, seven months, year. Um, so let's say you're doing 10 years, you murdered somebody. You're doing 15, or you're doing 15 to life, you murdered somebody. Uh, that's your punishment. Why should you also lose the right to vote? You know, you can pay attention to, to what's going on. Uh, not that you have to. Just as well on the inside as people do on the outside. <laughs> Probably in some cases, I'm sure they pay more attention. But anyway, um, yeah, so why not? The two states that allow it, Maine and Vermont, I don't know what their uh, penal rate is of people that are incarcerated. It was, who cares? So is, it say, say it's one. It's a, the, the number is not material. It's the principle. So what about it? You know, I mean, uh, we're, there's all kinds of movements afoot to expand the electorate. Um, for example, uh, the city of Boston is looking to let more teens vote. The Boston City Council voted overwhelmingly just this past week to give 16- and 17-year-olds the right to vote in municipal elections. Now, that still has to be ratified by the state legislature in Massachusetts. But, yeah, I mean, there's I think there's some 125 members of Congress, Democrats, interestingly, who want to lower the uh, voting age to 16 for federal elections. So why not? What about lower the age to 16, let uh, prison inmates vote? And then people would have to, you know, candidates would have to have campaign events in prison, right? I could see <laughs> you, the Republican you candidates. Don't, like. You don't have to have, yeah, it would be right, Folsom prison yeah. uh, campaign. You, you don't have to have events anywhere, well, but. Thousands mm-hmm. of votes. And no. I'm sure this will pass, don't you think? Uh, in um, Montgomery County, I think it's Montgomery County, Maryland. No, it's, um, it's. Uh, Howard County, Maryland, Howard County, Maryland. Um, And there's a lawsuit pending on this. The school board, one of the school board members is a a student. One of the eight. So here's how it works. Um, The Howard County Board of Education has eight members. All have to be residents. The. Eligible voters, registered adult voters, whether or not they have children in the school, elect seven of them. The eighth member of the school board is not an adult. Instead, it's a member, it's a a junior or senior public school student elected by the 6th through 11th grade students also attending the public schools. You understand? So seven school board members elected by the taxpaying residents and one school board member who essentially has equal voting power to the other seven members is just elected by the 6th to 11th grade students who go to the public schools. So now you have people that are financing the school district and schools. They don't get to vote on one of the school board members, the kid, the student, a junior or senior. With spot reserved on the board for a junior senior to be elected by his classmates in public schools, private school, kids and parents, you're SOL. Isn't this fun? 
So what about that model? Maybe we should do that at CPS. Well, I mean, you know, when, if and when there's ever an elected school board, I, I know this is something that people think will usher in a great era of reform of CPS. Oh ha, God. ha, ha. It's going to be all CTU members. We got school board elections next year. So uh, 16-year-olds and maybe just the kids electing other kids to be to be on the school board to, to tell you what your property taxes are going to be, <laughs> what the curriculum is going to be, and uh, convicted felons in prison. Uh, John in Wakanda, you're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Yeah, Dan and Amy, thanks. Good morning. Um, I think an argument, I think the argument is that convicted felons for that purpose, that time period that they're in jail, have forfeited their right to be in civil society, but right. I think an argument could be made that once you get out of jail and you've reentered civil society, that the public has to determine which crimes are so heinous or so oppressive that we're, we're going to continue to keep that that uh, bar to voting on there. Like, let's say, theft, for instance, if you have a felony theft, and, and it's kind of fluid right now, but if you have felony theft that was a thousand dollars. Is that thousand um, dollar bar? Is that is that a little bit too high for, as opposed to you know as as compared to the right to want to vote for a candidate? I think that that has to be once it's enunciated that we're going to say okay certain amount of certain kind of felonies, then I think the public would be would be um, easier to for them to understand. But even though well, even well, so, well, 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 well the, Illinois, this is real simple. You can't vote while you're in custody, and your right to vote is restored as soon as you're released. Some sure. states you have that, to apply that, for reinstatement, but but it's automatic in Illinois. So the question is: right. is that is that expansive enough, or should we extend the franchise even to those serving their sentences while they're serving their sentences? I think it should depend on the crime. I think there's some crimes so, that people would not want. Well, so 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 what? Uh, rapists and murderers in prison uh, don't get to vote, but uh, a carjacker does. A habitual uh, thief does. I mean, what? Really? Maybe violent crimes. I don't know. I'm just saying, if you're going to make them, the people that are pushing for voting for felons are going to do so for political purposes, regardless of what the crime is. But if we want to set set a marker, I think maybe an more reasonable marker would be to uh, just determine which crimes you want to keep that, that says these are so bad that we're, we're just going to continue to withhold your right to vote or or just do away with the thing altogether. Thanks for the call, John. Margot Burridge. Yeah, I am old enough to remember the 1960s when the voting age was actually 21. And everybody, as the Democrats, were all saying, oh, Boys are going off to Vietnam. They're old enough to die for their country. They should be old enough to vote. So then we lowered, not just for the military, we lowered the voting age to 18 for everybody, all these college students. It destroyed college towns like State College, Pennsylvania, where Penn State University is. It raised the poverty. I mean, these kids don't, they have no skin in the game. They're there for four years. They, they destroy a college town. And it's all because they're now voting at 18. And, and they don't really care about anything except they're little silly things that they care about. They're not landowners. They're not, in general, they're not working. Uh, you know, they're they're not um, they're not invested in the community, and it's a terrible thing. We should raise it to twenty six. 
<laughs> right. When they, Obama- when they get off their parents' insurance. Obamacare, um, when they have the mens rea to commit crimes, according to Tim Evans. Mm. Yeah. Oh. He's a neurologist. I love it. Uh, George Moni. Well, Dan, I don't think this goes far enough. I mean, why should your mere physical death preclude your right to vote? Totally. I mean, Never you, has in Chicago. In, in, right. In, in perpetuity, man. I mean, you know, you, you voted Democrat all your life. You should continue to vote Democrat the entire time you're dead. And, and what about dogs and cats? They're people, too, right? They, <laughs> I mean, everybody, yeah. we should all vote all the time. <laughs> exactly. Just keep voting. Just everybody keep voting for what it really, it really doesn't matter. <laughs> we don't know who we're voting for. We just keep voting. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. The more you listen, the more you listen, the more you'll know. This is Chicago's Morning Answer. Morning Answer on AM 560. The Answer. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So uh, as we mentioned when we were talking about uh, legislation that uh, was filed to allow uh, individuals uh, who are imprisoned to vote while they're in prison, not the restoration of their rights after their release, after serving their term, their time, in, in Illinois, it's also called a term because you think political. Term, time, same difference. But anyway, uh, we're talking about uh, prison inmates being allowed to vote while they're inmates. Uh, that uh, continues the conversation about uh, the General Assembly because before they adjourned for the holidays yesterday, they, to hear Jelly Belly tell it, made some language cleanups to the Pritzker Purge Law, the right. so-called Safety Act. It's all good now, I understand, from Governor Pritzker and the Democrat Socialists, and, you know, they're the law and order type, so that's oh, good right. enough for me. But he wasn't there because he was in Washington, D.C. with Emmanuel Macron and President Biden. But one thing the bill clarified was uh, that police can now arrest someone for trespassing and that judges can issue arrest warrants when someone misses court. Wow, should we have a party? Should we celebrate? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. There's there's like 100 pages worth of changes, um, language changes, so I haven't had time to review and digest them all. We will over the weekend. I'm sure we'll get um, uh, one of the state's attorneys and sheriffs to talk about oh, this yeah. next week uh, as they're assessing the implications because there's, you know, here's the the core pieces of this law. Yes. Uh, no cash bail. That's not changed. Right. That has not changed, everybody. Listen Zero up. cash bail provisions will still go into effect January 1, pending the outcome of this litigation, which will go forward. The consolidated cases uh, brought by county prosecutors that will be heard by a Kankakee County Circuit Court judge this month that is going forward. So there's still this possibility that the law is enjoined at the circuit court level and then works its way up uh, more likely than not. This uh, these cosmetic changes to the Safety Act that were advanced yesterday um, do not change the litigation that's pending. So that's important to note. Also important to note is that this is basically the work product of legislators, Dem, socialists, 
the authors of this legislation, working with just four of the 102 county state attorneys. Three Democrats and one Bob Berlin. Those are the four. Um, also important to note, something that was emphasized by the prosecutors that we talked to, whether it was Eric Weiss in uh, Kendall County, whether it was Jim Glasgow in Will County, uh, whether it is an op-ed form from people like uh, Jay Hanley in Winnebago County, the 90-day clock. Right. 90 days or shall be released. Now, you still can pursue, but, you know, you release somebody that um, uh, is charged with a serious crime, and uh, sometimes it's time to, it's difficult to get them back. Um, so that 90 days stays. And just to give you a comparison here, because one of the states that moved for bail reform after a multi-year process that enlisted law enforcement at every step of the way when they were going to uh, change the way they do their uh, they do bail was New Jersey. This has been talked about, including talked about by prosecutors who oppose the Safety Act here, but are open to discussions of rethinking how we do bail in this state. Well, in New Jersey, by comparison, um, you've got 90 days to uh, go to trial. Right. But then you have another 45 if you're needed as needed. Um, I mean, sorry, you have you have I'm sorry, you have you have 90 days to charge. Uh, and um, uh, another 45 if needed. You have 180 days to bring to trial and another 60 if needed. So and, you know, when you hear from prosecutors about these these uh, a lot of these cases involving violent crime, you've got um, a lot of complicating factors, witnesses and. Um, collecting of evidence, I mean, all collecting and, and the anal analyzing of evidence oh, when you're having true. to enlist crime labs and so on and so forth. Right. Toxicology reports, sometimes those take six to eight weeks if you need that. So I mean, well, so what they revised yesterday was, help me out here, a three-tiered system for current defendants to request released. So it doesn't happen automatically. So the hearings have to be conducted between seven and 90 days. Depending so, on the seriousness of the case, but who decides what's serious and what's not? Uh, lowest level offenses like shoplifting, uh, hearings within seven days. I don't know, petty shoplifting, unless you're a habitual offender. There's probably not much interest in detention from the prosecution side. But anyway, uh, those detained but considered flight risks would get uh, hearings within 60 days. And those considered to be potential threats to safety, there's 90 days before uh, you have 90 days to um, to prepare to make the case that they should be detained. So there's still a presumption against detention. It's just that uh, they provided a, a tiered uh, protocol for the hearing system. Um, you mentioned police can arrest someone for, for trespassing. Yeah. Um, the police officer can arrest someone for trespassing if the person poses a threat to the community or any person. Oh, hmm. that's up for interpretation, too. Isn't it? Yes. Um, arrest is necessary because criminal activity persists after the issuance of the citation. 
or the accused has an obvious medical or mental health issue that poses a risk to their safety. So it's that's a little bit more complicated than it's being than it's being advertised. Arrest is necessary because criminal activity persists after the so I'm at trespassing, then I get a ticket, and then I leave, and then I come back. Then do you call the police again? Do I get another ticket? Or can you arrest me at that time? I guess that's persisting. Then I can be arrested. So I get the ticket the first time. I leave. I come back. Then you have to call police a second time so that they so they are allowed to arrest me. If I'm otherwise not posing a threat to the community or any person, I'm just trespassing on your property, that's a ticket still. And even the Democrats yesterday realized – um, yeah, this this isn't great. It's not perfect now, but we can continue to work toward the concerns of the public in every single policy area, including criminal law. And I think this bill largely does that. That was Scott Bennett from Champaign. Uh, the uh, dangerousness standard for um, detention. Prosecutors show uh, an individual uh, poses a, a threat uh, real and present threat to any person or persons uh, or the community based on specific explainable facts of the case. Well, again, the presumption is still against detention. So I don't know that, um, and, and again, based on a sort of a hasty read-through, I don't know that anything's changed with respect to the non-detainable offenses that got so much uh, attention that we devoted so much attention to that the other side dismissed as, as untrue and they were lying. I think they're continuing to lie. The presumption has not changed for non-detention and the offenses that are de facto non-detainable, the presumption that they're non-detainable, that hasn't changed either. So the 90 day clock hasn't changed. The presumption of non-detention hasn't changed. Um, they set up a fund f- to um, hire more public defenders. Oh, that's good. Oh, yeah. N- n- yesterday, more public County... defenders, but, oh. but no fund for more prosecutors? Well, you put this 90-day clock to get to trial, you're gonna, you better fund more prosecutors, or you're going to just be releasing more people who uh, have been detained pending trial. And so if they've been detained pending trial, then you're talking about you know, the most violent of the violent criminals or those accused of the most violent of the violent crimes. All right. Oh, by the way, just a a little uh, throwback here to the passage of the original version before these cosmetic changes made this week. Justin Slaughter, he's a Democrat socialist from Chicago and uh, lead sponsor of the Safety Act. Listen to what he said on the House floor. But as long as crime and violence is contained in the hood, it was okay. As long as black folks terrorized other people of color, it was fine. But now, but now, Chirac is in your communities. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Now Chirac is in your communities, and he's right about that. Uh, And, golly, how should you interpret that? Should you interpret that as I suggested uh, the Safety Act was uh, meant 
to socialize the violent crime problem in Chicago land, as the city does with all of its policies, not only to extend its reach in the region and dominance of the region, but also to offload its problems and the financing to deal with those problems to the region. Yeah. Thank you for that uh, admission as to my observation, Mr. Slaughter, Representative Slaughter. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And and by the way, uh, now Chirac is in your community. Well, who's that message to? Yeah. Who's that message to? And uh, it's interesting. Take Hinsdale police warn of armed thieves looking for unlocked cars overnight. Two homeowners have been shot at. <gasps> That's it last night. Hinsdale? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Hmm. He's right. He's certainly right. And um, unless this law is enjoined by a court when it takes effect on January 1, these cosmetic changes notwithstanding, Justin Slaughter is going to be even more right then than he was a couple of years ago when he moved this legislation through the General Assembly. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. Uh, John in Naperville. Yeah, two quick points. One of the things that bugged me what you said is that the legislation is on Christmas break now. It's December 2nd. Don't these people work? Our ship is burning, and they're going to be on break. Number no, part, two, I would legislators. love to yeah, I would love to see what the closure rate or the, uh, you know, um, case closure rate is going to be on crime going forward once this is passed. I guarantee you it's going to be a lot worse than it is now, and it's dismal now. Thanks for the call, John. Phil in Merrillville. Yeah, you know, I, I really think that most of the problems in society stem from Democrat policy and law because you're taking criminals that normally wouldn't vote and are convicted and now they're going to vote Democrat because they know the Democrats are on their side. And then you also factor in things like illegal immigration. They're trying to legalize every illegal immigrant. That's going to be pure votes for the Democrats. I mean, the, the Democrats are doing everything corrupt as they can to get votes. That, that's what it boils down to. Thanks for the call, Phil. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. There's only one radio show in Chicago talking about today's biggest stories and telling you what they really mean. That show is this one. Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Tuesday is the runoff election for the Senate seat in Georgia between Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock. And already two million people have voted so far for early voting. What are the prospects of uh, picking up a Senate seat there with the prospects of Herschel Walker winning? Well, uh, Georgia Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, who's a Republican, um, he's not helping Herschel Walker's prospects, I'll tell you that. This is what he said on CNN yesterday. I showed up to vote this morning. I was one of those folks who got in line and spent about an hour waiting. And, uh, you know, it was the most disappointing ballot I've ever stared at in my entire life uh, since I started voting. You know, I had two candidates that I just couldn't couldn't find anything that, that made sense for me to put my, my vote behind. And so I walked out of that 
that ballot box uh, showing up to vote but not voting for either one of them. So you didn't vote. What I mean, that oh, that's the reason why he was on CNN, because if he said he voted for Herschel Walker, they wouldn't have given him that platform. Well, right, there'd be no story. Right. But there's a story there, and, um, boy, What's I, wrong with him? I wonder how that implicates uh, Governor Kemp as well. Now, um, by contrast, because this is an interesting contrast, Bakari Sellers, who's uh, an attorney and you know, frequent uh, guest on CNN, I think he was a former state legislator in South Carolina. He's uh, for Raphael Warnock, and uh, he certainly appreciates the Republican lieutenant governor making the announcement that he did. Well, look, I, I want Raphael Warnock to win this election, and my mama always would tell me to leave well enough alone. And there has been no better message than that of Lieutenant Governor Duncan on why Raphael Warnock should probably be the next United States senator or the inability, uh, better said, for Herschel Walker to actually serve. Hmm. I don't know if uh, Herschel Walker doesn't win. It's going to be a going to have a hard time pinning this on Trump, it would seem to me. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by Selena Zito, national political reporter and author of The Great Revolt. Inside the Populist Coalition, Reshaping American Politics. You can always check out her latest reporting at selenazito.com. Selena, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. I think it's important uh, that your listeners know uh, that Duncan is the outgoing lieutenant governor of Georgia. He did not run for re-election, and right. he has been running against and mouthing off about the Republican Party uh, since uh, he decided not to run well over a year ago. Uh, a new lieutenant governor will take the oath of office when uh, in January. So it's, it's not as though this guy has much cachet um, uh, with, with Republicans or anyone in, in, in Georgia. Well, the, the, but um, to be fair, I mean, Brian Kemp and the general election didn't provide much aid and comfort to Herschel Walker. He really kept his distance. Um, and, oh, no, he, was out, and, he was out campaigning with him a lot. Really? I mean, my, I was, my, yeah, my, I was, I was down there covering it. He, he campaigned a lot with Herschel. He and Herschel has been friends for over 30 years. And, um, I have a story out today. Um, uh, uh, you can y'all can check it out selenazito.com but uh, he has put all he has donated tons of money he has put all of his people um, all of his, uh, his volunteer system his entire campaign infrastructure is handed it over to the Walker campaign but, well, but that's but, but that's I'm, but so just so we're clear that that's so you're saying though that's the last that's since November 8th he's done that but I, you're saying because this is different than I understand, but you've been on the ground there, so I'll defer to your yeah. uh, understanding. But but you, Brian Kemp was uh, full-throated and out and proud with Herschel Walker in, in the general election? Oh, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. All right. Yeah, All right. absolutely. They, they, those two have been very close friends for very good years. I mean, for very very good friends for very many years. And and um, I was down there several times when he was campaigning uh, with with Herschel. And hopefully Brian Kemp could move the needle because 200,000 more Republicans voted for Brian Kemp, who did not vote for Herschel Walker. So last night, President or former President Obama 
was out there, you know, with uh, Warnock having they had a huge rally. What big names have been in Georgia to help elevate Herschel Walker? Uh, everyone you can think of. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they they have uh, everyone has sort of descended into into Georgia from Nikki Haley to uh, Mike Pompeo to um, Ted Cruz, uh, Kim Scott, Ted Cruz. Camp, I think the um, I, I think DeSantis was there. Um, uh, yeah, I mean they have called in all of the troops to help put Herschel over over the top. But not it, President Trump. Uh, I don't think they wanted him there. Mm-hmm. Okay, just tell us. Well, well right, because you, you, they they don't want to make this about Trump. They want to make it about Warnock, frankly, right? And Biden. right, exactly, exactly. And you want to bring people in. That are governors, right? That like DeSantis, like Kemp. You know, you want to bring in people that uh, win elections um, on good governing, and I think that is what Herschel needs to cast himself as being associated with. And and, and so it's, it's about imagery. It's about what am I going to be like? Uh, and and so I think. The people that have have rallied and come from across the country in terms of um, uh, Republican leaders have been just the right ones to do so. So what's your handicapping of it? Well, uh, that early voting does not look good for Herschel. However, uh, Republicans are day of election voters traditionally. So... I, you know, I, I, I have a hard time um, thinking it's not going to be close no matter which way it goes. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I, I don't, I, I don't have a, I don't have a sense. You know, it's hard to gauge uh, early voting and and until election day comes, right? And you're like, oh, well, there's the rest of the people, and right. so. You don't really know who's showing up until that day. Now, I, I will say this. I know a lot of Georgians were very sort of beside themselves after 2020 when Warnock won because 472,000 of them didn't show up for that runoff. And they understand that led to a Democratic majority and a lot of... of um, sort of cachet given to the Democrats to spend as much as they want. I know they had obstacles such as Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. However, you know, they, they felt that. And so I, I would be surprised that, that they don't show up on Election Day. Um, you mentioned early voting, and uh, this has become an important topic of discussion in GOP circles after the... Um after 2020 and, and now 2022, uh, Arthur Herman from the Hudson Institute, writing in the Wall Street Journal, that at, at one time, uh, from 2010 to 2014, Republicans had the edge in early voting. But yep. it, it's by 2018, it was even. And then 2020, Democrats 54 to 32 in early voting and, and uh, nearly 40 percent of independents voting before Election Day. And uh, based on what some of what we've seen around the country in 2022, that uh, that lead Democrats have on early voting has expanded. Yeah, you know, I, I wrote a piece 
just a week ago saying Republicans, they, look, they may not like it. They, 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 and, and they may not, you know, think that it's uh, the best way to vote. People should vote on Election Day. It should be lots of people advocate for an, uh, that day off so that, you know, everyone comes in and votes. And, and, but, but this is how, right now, this is how the game is played. And this is the sandbox you've been delegated to. Now, you can play in that sandbox, or you can sit on the sidelines and pout about it. Uh, sitting on the sidelines hasn't helped Democrats. I mean, it has not helped Republicans. Case in point in Pennsylvania, John Fetterman, before the even first vote was cast on Election Day in Pennsylvania, had already banked one million voters. Oh, my gosh. One million people had already voted for him before that debate. Before the debate. So Republicans need to be as good as that because you can track that vote. You know that that person sent their vote in. And you know that you can go out and get that person say, you know, you didn't send your vote in. You didn't send your ballot in. Let's send that ballot in. And or they can just sit sit on the uh, on the sidelines and say, Jesus, I hope they show up on election day. You know, it, it, it's all about numbers, and most importantly, it's all about moving numbers. Democrats have an incredible operation of knowing exactly who got a mail-in vote and tracking that person. They send them text messages. They um they send them emails. Uh, you know, they make sure that person once they get that mail-in ballot has voted. Republicans don't do that. Wow. She is Selena Zito, national political reporter, author of The Great Revolt, Inside the Populist Coalition, Reshaping American Politics. And you can always check out her reporting at selenazito.com. Selena, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Happy weekend, everyone. Thanks. You too. And she joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Before you see it on TV, share it on Facebook or read about it in the paper. Hear it here first. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So the rail worker strike has been averted, but only because of federal government intervention into the contractual dispute between management and labor. I mean, I know with respect to the railroads, that's an area where the federal government can intercede. But should it? That's well, the big guy, Mr. Ten Percent, certainly thought so. He was uh, all smiles, too. congratulating himself as and and this was bipartisan nature. Yeah. A lot of Republicans congratulating themselves too. They're the heroes in this story. Here was uh, uh, the big guy taking a break from uh, praising his uh, fellow socialist Macron to address. The rail strike. I've made it really clear I'm going to continue to fight for paid leave for not only rail workers, but for all American workers. I I imagine it may surprise some of our European friends that there's no paid leave in the United States of America. We're one of the few major countries in the world that don't have it. And it's about time. And so that's the context in which this all took place. And, uh, and, uh, you know, and labor signed on to it as well, as you recall, initially. There were four unions out of the, I think, 13 or 14 that didn't like it. And, uh, but I think we're going to get it done, but not within this agreement. Not within this agreement. We're going to avoid the rail strike, keep the rails running, keep things moving, and I'm going to go back and we're going to get 
paid leave, not just for rail workers, but for all workers. I mean, 24% increase over five years salary increase, but they get one paid sick day? I don't know. But the, the labor union who all voted for President Biden, they're not too happy. This uh, is Marley Taylor. She's a railroad worker, union spokesperson based in Chicago. I think it's the most undemocratic thing, most anti-union thing that has occurred in this country in some years. I think that the Biden administration has no business calling themselves pro-labor. Yeah, I agree with her. Um, So does Rand Paul in part. Uh, Rand Paul, who voted present, explained his vote. Well, you know, once Congress gets involved in this, I would guess that they'll keep running to Congress. I don't think it's a good idea really to have Congress involved with mediating contracts between labor and management. I actually voted unusually present because I don't think there's any role for Congress and Congress shouldn't say whether labor is right or management is right. I think had we not gotten in the middle of this, they would have come to an agreement because obviously a strike is not only bad for the country, it's bad for labor and it's also bad for management. So, but by Congress coming to the rescue, I think it encourages this to happen again. And this isn't really the way the marketplace is the way people should figure out their wages. It's not the way we should have collective bargaining. Yeah, but if uh, Congress doesn't get involved, then all those Congress beings can't send out press releases declaring themselves heroes for averting a rail strike and saving the American economy and 700,000 jobs and so on and so forth, like you heard the big guy do. For more on this, please to be joined by John Hinderaker, president of the Center of the American Experiment and contributor to Powerline, uh, the Powerline blog, powerlineblog.com. John, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Hey, great to be with you, Dan. Uh, what about that? Uh, is Rand Paul where the Republican Party should have been writ large and largely was not? Well, I think so. You know, this whole story is kind of a throwback to the 1950s. You know, I'm old enough to remember the days when these these conflicts between big labor and, and management and giant industries like the railroads were, were, were constantly in the news. Strikes, threats of strikes, uh, federal intervention, cooling off periods. You know, this this is this is a road we have been down many times uh, before, but but not so much uh, recently. And, and I do think Rand Paul is right. I, I, I think that, um, you know, what, one of the things they're trying to do here, they're terrified that Christmas presents won't be arriving on time. You know, the timing of this potential strike, uh, you know, during the Christmas season is, oh, no, you know, nobody's Christmas presents are going to be arriving. Uh, and, and, um, and I think that's part of what drove it. But, yeah, I, I think Paul is right. Once Congress gets involved, well, now the arbiter. The parties will keep running back to them, and, and there's no there's no public answer. There, you know, there's no legal uh, congressional answer to the question of what should wages be in the railroad industry and what should benefits be in the in the railroad industry. That, that's the, the only way to to decide those issues is to negotiate them in the context of supply and demand. Yeah, but Biden's got a little egg on his face because he got into office with the help of unions. Yeah, but he just saved Christmas, didn't you hear? (laughs) And by the way, you know that union member who says, how can they call themselves pro-union? They're not, or pro-labor. They're not pro-labor. She's a slow learner, right? I mean, it's been a long time since the Democratic Party was pro-labor. Indeed. Now, um, you've uh, uh, written recently about energy, and these uh, stories that are coming out of the Eurozone are, well... I mean, I'm not, you know, rooting for people to have uh, difficult lives, but this is, you know, 
uh, sow and then reap sort of stories. Switzerland, facing an unprecedented power shortage, contemplates a partial ban on the use of electric vehicles. It's just wonderful. It's just wonderful, isn't it? Yeah, we we, we mandate that people must drive electric vehicles. However, oops, we don't have any electricity, and so you can't charge them. We're seeing some of this in California, too. I mean, it's just this whole thing is turning into a train wreck, as anybody with any sense knew it was going to. Mm. Um, And and, um, the position i mean with thinking about kevin mccarthy and republicans we you know it's easy to to point out the cause and effect of these policies uh that are being advanced globally and locally around the uh around the world and in particularly in deep blue states but but I, you know what would your advice and counsel be to kevin mccarthy since he's got a majority about the republicans position on energy solutions to energy how to talk about it how to compare and contrast the biden gavin newsom jb pritzker kathy hochel vision to to uh, the republicans vision well the republican position should be that americans need affordable reliable energy and where do you get affordable reliable energy you get it from um, fossil fuels you get it from coal you get it from natural gas you get it from nuclear, you get it from hydro. You do not get it from uh, wind turbines and solar panels, which are essentially worthless. You know, most of the time they don't produce any electricity. You cannot rely on them. And so uh, that, I think that should be the byword. We, we need affordable, reliable energy. And all federal policies should be geared toward accomplishing that. And what that means is, for goodness sake, stop suppressing the production of oil and gas. Instead, encourage the production of oil and gas, because that's the only way that Americans are going to be able to drive their cars and and heat their homes and and so forth uh, in a manner that's affordable. I want to get your take on something else, too, in terms of thinking of a Republican majority. So you're going to have attention and a platform that you hadn't had in a, a couple of years and um and people are going to be looking you know the part of the takeaway from what happened on november 8th was uh people weren't comfortable that republicans were solutionists that they didn't have a vision for uh the various policy challenges facing the country so uh, something um uh, a topic that they need to address because the mandates pers- persist and the and so do the arguments is COVID and vaccine mandates. Dr. Asim Alhorta is a cardiologist and uh, he has been outspoken recently uh, about uh, big pharma and the vaxes and the incidence of myocarditis, the concerns he has about the uh, the health effects of these mRNA vaccines in certain uh, cohorts. And this is what he had to say to Tucker Carlson. I want you to hear what he has to say and uh, ask you if you think this should be part of the Republican majority in the House's position when it comes to COVID policy. After two doses of the mRNA vaccine, Pfizer or Moderna, there were increased markers of inflammation linked to coronary artery disease, increasing the risk after just 10 weeks of someone's risk of, say, having a heart attack of 11 percent in five years. Right suddenly jumped to 25% within two months. Now, just to put that in perspective, Tucker, if I decided today I was going to smoke 40 cigarettes, I was going to completely stop exercising and just gorge on junk food, I couldn't increase my risk even close to that in that space of time. Absolutely. In this institution, the cardiology research had found by accident, looking at coronary imaging, so imaging of the heart, they found in vaccinated 
versus unvaccinated, huge markers of coronary inflammation, right? A signal from the mRNA vaccines. They then had a meeting and they sat around and they said, listen, the, the lead researcher said, we're not going to publish these findings because it may affect our funding from the pharmaceutical industry. I think this is the downstream effect. My hypothesis is this, of a psychopathic entity that has had increasing, unchecked, visible and invisible power over our lives over the last three decades. I believe that. And I think the only way to address this problem is to tackle it at the root, which is, for example, my solutions are these, some very straightforward, simple ones. Although drug industry can be involved in developing drugs, they shouldn't be allowed to then test them and hold on to the raw data. The regulators shouldn't be funded by industry. Of course not. And politicians should not be taking money for campaign donations from Big Pharma. One of the primary purposes of government, Tucker, let's just go back to the basics, is to protect their citizens from external aggressors, but also to protect their citizens from disease and to serve the interests of the people. And they are not doing that if no, they I are know. taking money from an entity well, that if is the FDA gets the What do you think, John? Well, on that last point, Ed, you could say the same thing about a lot of industries, right? right. But I, more broadly, I, here are my thoughts on this, Dan. Uh, number one, I, I think almost everybody has figured out that COVID was not that big a deal. Yes, a lot of people have died, but the vast majority of them are people in their 80s and 90s who are already very sick. COVID to a normal, healthy person who's not institutionalized in a nursing home or something poses almost no risk. And I think people have figured that out, and I think the panic is over. The second thing that we've learned is that the vaccines don't do much good. Originally, we were told, hey, get vaccinated, bang, you won't get COVID. And oops, you know, all these vaccinated people, <clears throat> including me, to name just one, you know, did in fact get COVID. And then the story was, okay, okay, you'll get COVID, but you won't get a bad case. You won't be hospitalized. You won't die. Well, as time goes by and we continue to study the numbers, it turns out that it's very questionable whether there's a significant advantage to these vaccines in terms of, in terms of serious outcomes. It's, 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 it's doubtful. And at the same time, we're seeing evidence like for what you just played there on Tucker's show, where people are documenting adverse effects from vaccines, particularly related to the heart. And I think the jury is out on that. I, I think it, it's going to take more study to pin down what's going on there and is it really serious. And so the bottom line of all that is that the Republicans' position should be health freedom right? Health freedom, no vaccine mandates. Uh, for, and for goodness sake, you know, don't make little kids get vaccinated to go to school. Mm. I mean, that's the dumbest of them all. I mean, COVID is not dangerous uh, to children. So, well, so I, think, I think the watchword should though. be health freedom. No, I'm sorry for interrupting you, but a lot of schools are doing that. I know. Private it's and terrible. public schools. And we're still waiting here in Illinois to see what our governor is going to do because he hasn't decided yet. He wants to weigh in on the science and the data. It's absolutely terrible. We've known it for a long time. You know, it was obvious early on in this epidemic, way back in, in early 2020, that, that COVID is a disease that can be real tough on you if you're very old and you're already sick. But young people, you know, the, 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 the mortality rate, which is close to zero among kids under 18, is lower than the mortality rate for the average seasonal flu. Mm -hmm. and, and so the idea of, of forcing vaccinations that really 
really do have some unknown health consequences, again, especially in young people. The idea of forcing kids to get vaccinated is outrageous. And so I think, I think, I think that should be the Republican position, health freedom. It's up to you. You know, you can look at the, at the news stories about the data. You can evaluate your own health, your own situation. If you think and talking to your doctor, you believe a vaccine will, will help to protect you, get a vaccine. If you conclude that a vaccine isn't for you for whatever reason, don't get a vaccine. But, but, but the government should not be in the business of forcing or pushing people in one direction or the other. Sounds sensible to me. He's John Hindraker, president of the Center of the American Experiment, contributor to Powerline Blog, powerlineblog.com. John, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Hey, great to be with you. Have a good day. Thanks, you too. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Connect with Dan and Amy on the AM560 The Answer mobile app. Just text the word app to 64636 to download the app today. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. I don't know what was more painful to watch. Kanye on Alex Jones or Sam Bankman-Fried on GMA being interviewed by Clinton Foundation donor zero, George Stephanopoulos. Well, they were both painful, but Kanye West, I think, wins that one because that was something unlike I've ever seen before in my life, and I never want to see it again. Uh, You know, Sam Bankman-Fried, SBF, uh, mentioned uh, that uh, his participation in this New York Times-sponsored confab the other day was against advice of legal counsel. I'm sure the same goes for this interview uh, that he did for GMA, and he might want to start listening to his lawyers because uh, they're – I mean, I I would say Stephanopoulos is not the most skilled interrogator, and yet – Yet, yet this happened on a key question that has some legal implications to to understate it, which is, what did you know about how customer funds were being moved around? Specifically, what did you know about FTX customer funds being used to pay creditors for Alameda Research, despite an apparent prohibition on such use that's written right into the terms of agreement with customers, with clients. Take a listen to this exchange, protracted. One of the reasons FTX went bankrupt is because FTX deposits were used to pay Alameda's creditors. Carolyn Ellison said you knew about that. Is that true? You know, best I can tell, uh, Alameda did have a big position open on on FTX. Um, That position... Uh, I think was, you know, very over collateralized uh, a year ago. There is a, a total market collapse, and sp- you know, specifically large correlated collapse in its assets. You know, over the last month, and to some extent over the last year, that I, uh, you know, threatened that position quite a bit. And I think that's, you know, as best I understand, a lot of what happened there. I, I am no cryptocurrency expert. I'm no finance expert. Yep. But I don't think you answered my question. I always ask, yep. did you know that FTX deposits were used to pay off Alameda creditors? Uh, I don't know of FTX deposits being used to pay off Alameda creditors. Are you... 
Uh, which, which creditors are you referring to? Carolyn Ellison said that you all knew that these funds were used, were put into Alameda. They were the funds owned by your depositors. So I can't speak for who knew what. You know, a lot of the... Yeah, so there's three times she tried. I can't speak for who knew what. Well, how about you well, just speak for what you knew? Right. All right, you tried a fourth time. This is really a yes or no <laughs> question. <laughs> yep. Carolyn Ellison says you knew that FTX funds were being funneled to Alameda. Did you know that? I knew that there is an open margin position there and that that involved... I know, but that's not what I'm borrow. asking. <laughs> if she's in court and you're in court and she's under oath and you're under yep. oath and you're asked, did you know that these funds were being funneled to Alameda, what is your answer? I did not know that there is any improper uh, use of customer funds. Those pregnant pauses with him trying to process a question that was asked four times. Guilty. Do, do not inspire oh. a lot of confidence. I would die say, if he was my client. Like, what are you doing? Uh, right. Um, oh. He uh, offered this explanation for his spectacular failure. This is really okay, I can't wait a to hear remark it. remarkable statement as well. I spent a lot less time looking at assets and looking at balances and positions because that's not where revenue came from. And so it, I wasn't seeing it as a core business driver. Obviously, it was a core risk, and that was a huge mistake of mine to not think more about that. Now you said one of your great it's, talents in a podcast was managing risk. That's right. And it's obviously wrong. Well, I it's I think that there is something maybe even deeper wrong there, which was I wasn't even trying like I wasn't spending any time or effort trying to manage risk on FTX trying like and that that obviously that's that a stunning a admission. What? That's a pretty stunning admission. Yeah. I mean, it, I don't know what to say. Like what happened happened. And like if I had been. If I had been spending an hour a day thinking about risk management on FTX, I don't think that would have happened. I think I, I stopped working as hard for a bit. You know, honestly, if I look back on myself, I think I got a little cocky. I made more than a little bit. Um, and I think part of me, like, you know, felt like, um, like we'd made it. If the, doing these interviews and participating in these symposia is his effort to do some reputational damage control, I don't think it's going how he no. would hope it to go. Because he comes across as uh, even more buffoonish than you might think, given this spectacular collapse. And not necessarily more forthright than you would think. Uh, for more on this, for professional in the space, uh, know something about risk management, which, by the way, is sort of a, a core core competency that's required to be in the businesses that Sam Bankman-Fried was in. But, hey, uh, what do I know? Jim Perry, he's the SVP or uh, VP of Ar Arbor Research. Uh, our friend Jim Perry joins us now. Thanks for being with us again, Jim. Thank you, Dan. So uh, how, how do you react to what you heard from Sam Bankman-Fried, both on the you know, risk management isn't something I was paying attention to, as well as his dodging around until he finally made the declaratory I didn't misuse client funds statement on the relationship between uh, FTX and Alameda Research. Right. So 
there's a basic premise when you manage other people's money. And that basic point is that your clients have entrusted you. It's all about trust. And when you appear untruthful, that component of trust evaporates. And Sam has got some explaining to do. He's obviously not going to do it on national television. I suspect he'll have to do it in a court of law. And if you commingled client funds to pay creditors, that's fraud. It's fraud. We'll right. See what happens, but what what about the if I had spent an hour a day thinking about the downside, then you know this wouldn't have happened. Management is a fundamental building block of managing money, and one of the things I learned when I was first working in this business is anytime you put a position on, there's a stop loss, and if he didn't understand that or pretended that he didn't understand that. That's incompetence. How stunned are you by some of the biggest players in the venture world putting as much money with this guy as they did? I mean, you you have a conversation with Sam Bankman Freeman, and that inspires confidence to, if you're Sequoia, to put two hundred million dollars in his hands to manage. I I just I, I don't even understand it based on the way this guy is handling. Uh, the uh, explanation of what happened. I agree, Dan. I um, It's unfathomable to me that more risk management on the part of these sophisticated investors was not uh, taken part. It, it, it seems uh, silly. Perhaps, you know, we've talked about Bitcoin and blockchain for a long time. I think there's a lot of uh, momentum in the financial industry, not to lose out on the next big trend. And a lot of these uh, investors into this, they're very, very large investors, and they've got a tremendous amount of risk. And putting a portion of money into something like FTX, they really didn't, in the grand scheme of things, lose that much of their capital. But um, on a relative basis, it's a stunningly large bet. But I think these guys really want to try to get involved because of the fear of missing out on a trend that if they don't get involved, they will feel left behind. But it also speaks to something else. I mean, um, either the lack of due diligence or a pretending to understand something you don't understand. And if I was if I had money with Sequoia, I'd be like, for, forget the 200 million. I know that's a, a pennies for for the the funds they have under management. But I would lose confidence in them because of. One of those two things they did, the failure of due diligence or pretending to know something that you don't understand. I agree. And, you know, it's funny that you say that because, you know, we all have these sort of creeping little sort of subconscious feelings about being bullish and bearish. And, you know, they they come at us at, at different angles at different times for different reasons. And I think that, you know, this is just another little straw on the camel's back. It reduces investor confidence in this massive bubble that we've had uh, really since, you know, 1987 and accelerating in 2008. This is all about too much money floating around in the system that uh, has been printed by the Fed.
Well, do you think the government didn't intervene because he was such a big donor to the Democratic Party? And he promised $1 billion for next year. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's the rumor. And I, I read everything you do, and I read everything that many of your listeners read. Um, I think there's some shady dealings here that are going to have to come out. And whether the SEC or the Department of Justice is going to look into this uh, quickly, I, I doubt that will happen. But I think that investors deserve uh, a prompt uh, undercovering of where all this money was going. I mean, I think there's something like $8 billion missing, and maybe that's just a headline figure. Maybe it's more than that. And, you know, where did it go? But don't we have a, a case here, too, where especially in this, you know, this this um, don't want to miss out a new industry cryptocurrency. Don't we have an issue here, though, too, where the operators in the space are way ahead of the regulators? And, you know, how did they miss this? Because they don't even know where to look uh, that they may, maybe, you know, how much understanding do you think the regulators have of right. uh, crypto in the industry, in the sector? Well, uh, uh, substantially less than the algorithmic traders and the high-frequency traders in Wall Street. I mean, that's been the common thread of every bust of every bubble that we've had, that the regulators right. are behind. They didn't understand the mortgage market. Bernanke didn't realize how much leverage was in the system. He was the Fed chairman, right? So the smartest guys in finance do not work with the government, and they are many steps ahead of the regulators because – the regulators have to go through a process, which is, you know, gathering all information from all parties. So the November jobs number, 263,000 new jobs, uh, according to the Labor Department, if you believe these things, and it beat the street estimates. So what does that mean for, if anything, for what Jay Powell plans on doing later this month? Are we still looking at a 50 basis point hike and and then... You know, as he said, uh, that rallied the markets uh, the other day, moderation from there, there forward. Uh, a lot of information there. I'll start with the non-farm payroll number. Uh, 263,000 jobs were created last month. Um, that is after uh, 261 the month before. The whisper number on the street today was about 180,000, right? So... Once again, um, Wall Street is expecting lower job growth so that we get less aggressive Fed tightening so that we can soon pause and pivot so the stocks can go up. And the market, you know, it's going to be down. It's going to be red on the week, right? Right. Uh, too, too, many job, too many jobs were created. I, you know, I mean, yeah. devalue, devalue our currency. Hooray. Create jobs. Boo. Exactly. exactly. I mean, it's it's kind of this sort of, uh, I don't know, this counterintuitive and, and counter-directional sort of psychology. But, you know, the pre-pandemic monthly jobs average was about 180,000, right? And uh, the first three quarters of this year, job growth was running over 400, right? 431,000 jobs, if memory serves. And I think that with people a little ahead of themselves with the markets, but you know, the key to all of this is, is Jerome Powell and, and his comments next week on the 14th uh, at the FOMC meeting, his press conference, he is going to say 
that, you know, again, history cautions strongly against uh, a premature loosening of policy. We will stay the course until the job is done. And the fact is that the market tends to lose focus on the idea that the number one issue at the Fed is inflation. And inflation is running really hot still, right? Core PCE, which came out yesterday, was up 5.1%. Wage growth is running at 5.1%, and it was up twice as much as it was last month, from 0.06, or from 0.03 to 0.06. So there is an imbalance in the labor market that has been created because of the pandemic slowdown and stimulus measures, which has to come into balance. And that has not happened yet. And the Fed hopes, this is the plan, this is the game plan, right? The Fed hopes higher interest rates will create a less competitive demand for labor, which will slow wages, reduce demand, and reduce CPI. That's the game plan, and it has not changed. He is Jim Perry, SVP and partner at Arbor Research. James, thanks as always. Appreciate it. And thank you very much. Amy, thank you very much. Have a good weekend. Thanks. You too. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. It's like a hot, steaming cup of information to start your day. It's Chicago's Morning Answer on AM 560. The Answer. Open my. Amy, it's that time of the week. Open mic Friday. Grab a line, 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro, answer line, 64636DA, turnkey.pro, text line, taking your calls with comments, compliments, concerns, general crack pottery. We'll take it all. Amy, is there anything you need yes. to speak to before I would, we take calls? Thank you so much. I would like to remind people that we are having an event, we as in the ladies, Jeannie Ives, Stephanie Trussell, myself, and others, for uncorked conversations Folks, it is this coming Thursday, December 8th at the Bishop's Hill Winery in Joliet, presented by Range at 355. And again, it's a, we'll be discussing critical issues. It's an evening of fine wine, unfiltered conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, but mostly ladies, are invited to join us for this important event. Um, if you attend, you're going to have valet parking. You're going to enjoy wine, appetizers, and desserts. Get your tickets now because it's general admission and extremely limited 560theanswer.com slash uncorked. That's 560theanswer.com slash uncorked. And we will see you next Thursday. All right. Very good. Do you uh, have anything you'd like to get off your chest? Uh, I may. I'm, let's, let's, do, let's get to some calls and we'll see if the issue arises and we'll take a detour if it does. Uh, or which issues do, that for that matter. Da, 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 Bob and Buffalo Grove, you're in Chicago's Morning Answer. Uh, good morning, Amy and Dan. Thanks for taking my call. Let me weigh in on your earlier discussion on the voting age uh, this morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, this discussion brought back memories of my college days and a movie from uh, 1968. Uh, have you ever watched the movie Wild in the Streets? I haven't. Wild in the Streets. It came out in 68. Yeah, I doubt many of your listeners have seen it, though it became a uh, cult classic of the uh, late 60s. 
There's a song in the movie called 14 or Fight, as there's a big push to lower the voting age uh, to 14. 14? Mm. Yeah, and it is achieved. There's a new Congress, and get this. People over the age of 35 are put into re-education camps fueled by drugs. Just huh. makes me wa- makes me wonder um, if uh, we're going to see re-education camps coming with regards to uh, some of the thoughts that are going around from some people. But if you get a chance, uh, it's kind Wild of a cult classic. All right, uh, I've not seen it. Yeah. yeah, there's a few, uh, uh, you know, it's a um, you know, B-grade uh, movie, but it had some stars in it, like Shelley Winters, Hal Holbrook. Oh, boy. Richard, Pri- Richard Pryor was wow. in it. Um, and um, one of the trailer. songs, one of the songs uh, from the uh, movie became a big hit record called, um, um, oh, I can't try, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of the song now, uh, Shape of Things to Come. It was a big oh. hit record, and yeah. Okay, okay very good. So take Thanks. a look at it. Thanks for the recommendation, Bob. I'll play that song as I'm thinking about uh, inmates being able to vote in Illinois. Mm-hmm. Oh, very good. That's legislation that's been proposed, by the way, we were talking about earlier yeah. in the program. You know, along with things like uh, allowing 16-year-olds to vote in municipal elections in Boston and other such expansions that mostly Democrats want to see. Uh, Rich, Indian Head Park. Yeah, good morning, uh, Dan. Good morning, Amy. Uh, what I'd like to say is, why is it called uh, hate speech when a person attacks somebody uh, or a group of people because he dislikes them, but it's okay for the government and politicians to attack people by calling them deplorables and white supremacists, stinky Walmart shoppers, mega extremists, uh, fascists, and the... Uh, and they call uh, parents uh, domestic terrorists. That's not hate speech. Can you tell yeah. me what the difference is between the two? Uh, good point, Rich. Thanks for the call. Well, you know, when you're denouncing haters, then you're not hating. You're using hate to combat hate. Oh. Yeah. Hmm. yeah, that does seem to be a bit confused, doesn't it? Uh, Chris and Carrie. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, uh, why doesn't uh, George Stephanopoulos have the same kind of tenacity when he's interviewing a political uh, someone in politics? I mean, he asked the question four times. You know, if, if it was, um, let's say, President Biden or KGB, someone else, he would have asked the question once, not gotten an answer, and moved on. I mean, where's the tenacity, George? Well, right. Yeah, that tenacity is reserved, as you well know, Chris, for people that are safe objects to go after can't be your sacred cows, your fellow travelers, even though Sam Bankman-Friedman was a fellow traveler. Now he is banished because he is, uh, you know, radioactive because of the collapse of his company. And, you know, the potential fraud that was perpetrated, which he helped to fill in a little bit in terms of (laughs) in terms of whether or not there was fraud in that conversation, I don't, as I said, I, I don't think he helped himself. I don't know what he thinks he's doing. Uh, Len in Highland Park. Good morning. So I worked at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange for 28 years. I want to tell you about a little bit about risk management and this uh-huh. knucklehead woke guy. Um, yeah, yeah. I had alcohol, cocaine, gambling, gambling problems. 
Yet when I handled my customers' accounts and I had some big accounts, okay, they had complete trust in me, okay, even though I couldn't run my personal life correctly with their money. And what this guy did and Terry Duffy on Tucker a week and a half ago, you know, had a meeting with this guy and called him out on it, you know, that he was just absolutely full of you-know-what. And I don't know why they don't shackle this guy and put him away. And I'll hear your comment. Yeah, thanks for the call, Len. Well, we played uh, this clip from a a hedge fund manager. Uh, We played this uh, when this all started to break apart a couple of weeks ago, talking about FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried. This guy, his name is Mark Cahodes. He's a... um, uh, again, an independent hedge fund manager. He's a veteran short seller. He was on this show that does market research or that's sponsored by a company that does market research for hedge funds called HedgeEye. And this is a month before FTX's collapse. Okay. okay. And this is what a Cohodis had to say about FTX and Sam Bankman Freed. Who the f has mentored SBF? Where did he come from? He was a washout from Jane Street. When anyone tries to pin SBF down on where he made his money, you can't get a cogent answer. You needed real money up front in the place on this country crypto arbitrage to make big money. No one in their right mind would ever give you the money. So who funded this trade for you? Normally when people start companies, they get venture capital money yep. and those venture capitalists own a piece of it. Did you get venture capital money? I did not for Alameda. And what we ended up doing was basically cobbling together lines of credit and, and other things from various sources, trying to sort of snowball and be able to, to, to build on ourselves. That's an example of the kind of answer Sam Bankman-Fried was giving about where his money's coming from, which uh, prompted those remarks from Cahotis. And, and he called the thing for what it turned out to be. Someone texted into this. Listen to the rest of it. You can't get a real answer. And his partner is a guy named Gary Wang. And no one can find on Gary Wang. You look up (laughs) Sequoia stuff. There's a picture of Gary Wang of his back facing a computer. (laughs) Gary Wang is the same CTO or the chief technology officer of FTX? Allegedly. They hired a chief regulatory officer who was part of a card cheating scandal, and his name is Dan Friedberg. And if you hit up Dan Friedberg's LinkedIn, there's no mention of his time at at the poker site. To be head of regulatory at FTX and have this in your past and cover it up, who the f*** runs FTX? You got a guy who sleeps on a futon in the Bahamas, whose chief regulatory officer has his hands all over a poker cheating scandal. He met his partner at a summer math camp in Canada? Wang, who the f*** are you? None of these people could run a lemonade stand, let alone an exchange. The fact that his his dad's involved in law or teaching at Stanford Law, I think is more ground cover for what I really think is going on. What has SBF done? He hasn't done in his life. He can't explain what he's done. And he puts up billboards of himself. He's the number two donor to the Democratic Party. This is a 30-year-old living in the Bahamas operating offshore. Why? What's your cause? And on the other side, you have Tom Brady and Giselle doing their ads. Everything reads like this thing is a complete scam. How about that summation? A month before the (laughs) collapse. Oh, they knew. 
Um, good. Text, if, you, if, yeah. if, you, if you scratch below the surface a little bit and you have the sophistication of somebody like a Mark Ahotis, then you saw for what it was, and it's remarkable that nobody else did. I mean, not these other players that are involved in FTX, including Caroline Ellison, who was his, I guess, girlfriend at one point or some. And she's got these videos posted, like laughing at the idea of stop losses, and that's not something we really do. And so, and she's supposed to be another math whiz, like this Gary Wang guy Wang, that nobody we met knows anything math about. Camp in Canada. I, I mean, are you serious with this? I mean, it's like an episode of Silicon Valley. Um, text message: Just looking and listening to this SBF guy, I'm amazed that anyone would invest their money with him. Yeah, yeah, he sounds to say the least. Goofy. Uh David Winneka. Hey, good morning, Jack. Good morning, Amy. So listening to this, uh, I call him low-hanging chichis, the FTX guy. But anyways, uh, it's, it's, they have a pattern when they try to backpedal out of these when they're, you know, the heat is on. Like Clinton, for instance, when he was talking about the Monica thing, I did not have improper. Improper is just this word that they, yeah, you know, they all seem to uh, seem to be their go-to word. They're this improper thing. But yeah, anyway. Thanks for the call, Dave. Right. The, well, it depends on what the definition of Alameda research is. Uh, <laughs> Furlan on, south, on the south side. When it comes to Kanye West, he may be smarter than the average bear. Oh. He may be doing this on purpose no. because I've hung out with a – hello? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, go, go, on. go ahead. Go ahead, Furlan. Oh, okay, because when I hung out with a lot, of, a lot of rich guys, they told me they will set their money on fire before they let – their ex and some new guy spend his money. I want you to think about something. Oh. In California, in California, they add up. It's real simple. They add up your assets, all your money. They split it down the middle because people were was um, predicting Kim was going to be the first woman billionaire, you know. But now he's devalued himself down to four hundred a million. Maybe it's going to go even lower than that because I want you to think about something. Who knew he was worth? 1.3 billion a couple of years ago. Nobody. He had to correct Google. Everybody was talking about Jay Z and Beyonce. So he may be rep- very smart because he might think, "Hey, I can make it back over time." He is the genius, you know. So I wanna. I'm going to make an ass of myself. I'm going to be banished, and I'm going to irreparably damage my career both as a businessman and as a recording artist because of my anti-Semitic ramblings. <laughs> Uh, and that's genius. And then I'm going to be, make a billion dollars down the road. I no, don't see number it, one, <laughs> I no, do not see number that. One, number one, as a rapper, you can never damage yourself as much, you know, mm. crazy stuff that they say. And, you know, hey, yeah, he, everybody he thinks he's half crazy anyway. Well, he owes Kim right, Kardashian $200,000 a month in child support. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if she's going to get that money since everyone's dropping him. Um, yeah, well, you know, Kim Kardashian has some issues, too. Um, we didn't get to it, but this whole um, what? Uh, Balenciaga no. scandal, this advertising scandal. So this, gross. The, this, the pro, this, Pro-pedophile. It, yeah, I mean, it's like a, pedophi- a pedophilic answer, uh, ad campaign. Yeah, there's and a little Kardashian girl holding just, a bear purse that's in bondage is one of them. And Kardashian is affiliated with this. She's like, I'm rethinking my relationship to Balenciaga. By the way, uh, Balenciaga is owned by the parent company, the Balenciaga's parent company, uh, run by who? What? Adidas. Selma Hayek's billionaire husband. Oh. Who owns uh, a bunch of these lifestyle brands, Gucci and uh, 
Yves Saint Laurent and so forth. Um, that whole thing, uh, we haven't been able to d- delve into it, but that is some wild stuff going on at Balenciaga. Uh, some sick stuff. Sick. And something else, too, uh, somebody made this point on, online. I'm forgetting the source now, but it holds up. Balenciaga, yeah. if you break up the, the name, uh, Baal is king. Oh. Like the fallen angel or the uh, false god, Baal, is king. Uh, some of these fashion houses and lifestyle brands, the people in charge, holy cow. D- depravity doesn't begin to properly describe it, but we'll have to get to that next week. Tom, Southside. I was wondering if you could give this one to Amy. You know, I heard truly like the political grapevine and since she's real tight with uh, Pritzker, oh, yeah. I heard yeah, that he's supposed. <laughs> I heard that he's supposed to be raising the uh, the license plate tax. You know, from one hundred and fifty one dollars, he's going to double it. So maybe giving her one of her uh, dinner engagements with him, she could ask him and then uh, see what happens. Like uh, call Tom. Yeah, hey, yeah when I you go out to him. dinner with uh, Jelly Belly and Ali G, would you ask yeah. him about the plate? Yes, I will ask them. Yes. Uh-huh. Karen Beecher. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I just wanted to say I've been a little bit out of sorts, if you can only imagine, since November 9th, worried with um, what's going to happen to conservative, common sense people here in the state of Illinois and this country. But your dedication to bringing us the news that we need to know and the resources that um, we could support our causes and our fights on, your dedication is just so inspiring. And then I'd like to segue into uh, your inspiration on Tuesday with Food for the Poor. Um, I got out of myself and let go of some of the worry uh, with those beautiful stories and that benefactor who... uh, stepped in for Giving Tuesday, and my little donation of $144, which I scraped together, uh, you know, is now going to help triple the amount of people. So I just wanted to thank you for your dedication and your inspiration. People are listening, and I'm going to try to do what you do. Well, thank you, Karen. Thank you, thank you for the donation very much. So very generous of you. We appreciate that. And $144, appreciate... she can feed 10 children for one year now. Yeah, so with the that. tripling, right. Yeah. And yeah, just go to 560theanswer.com slash food for the poor or call their number 844-862-4673. It literally takes two minutes. You give them your credit card number, boom, you're done. Darlene, Tinley Park. Hi, Dan and Amy. I suggest they reopen the mental hospitals that they closed in 1980 and get these damn criminals off the street. And by the way, for Food for the Poor, I donate $50 a month because I can't do a big lump sum amount. Well, thank you. Thank you for your donation. and We appreciate that, too. It's great. All right. Wrap it up. Chuck in Delavan, Wisconsin. Oh, so much excitement this weekend for me. They got the big... Lake Geneva's got their big Christmas uh, parade, and I get to light the Christmas tree. Me and Mrs. Claus are going to light the Christmas tree uh, at Magpies. What an honor. But tonight, yeah. it's Jefferson Starship and the Grand Funk Railroad. 
downtown Gary. I'm going to bring my AK-47. <laughs> okay. okay. It'll right. be great. All right. I'm sure Jefferson Starship appreciates uh, being apprised that you're coming. Thanks for the call, Chuck. Appreciate it. By the way, we uh, we we, did, we forgot to do uh, a little tribute to Christine McVie. Oh, that's right. We'll play more favorites? Fleetwood Mac songs. We'll have to do that on Monday. Oh, everything's going to be pushed to Monday. Fine, boss man. Sounds Dan good. and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. You're listening to Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.